0: You're listening to Sins of Detroit, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Detroit News. Season 1, Motor City Injustice, a look at wrongful convictions that started with investigations by the Detroit Police Department. Episode Episode 1, Shaky Witnesses.
1: hardest time any man can do is for a crime he didn't commit. And so the stress, the pressure is even double what the average person, because all the time you sitting there and you're missing birthdays with your children. I got three children. Um, my mother and father passed while I was inside. Um, I lost almost all my immediate family.
2: That was Daryl Siggers, who was convicted of a murder he didn't commit in 1984, and he spent 34 years in prison until he was exonerated in 2018. I'm George Hunter, crime reporter for the Detroit News, and over the past few years, I've covered a number of wrongful conviction cases out of Detroit, and I've gotten to know a lot of guys like Siggers. In this podcast, you're going to hear their stories. And they told me that's all they ever wanted was for people to listen and to understand the injustice that had been
1: done. This whole case, for the most part, was based on lies. just sloppy, police work, ineffective assistance of counsel, um, and just false forensic evidence. This is something that the Detroit police have been doing for a long time. They just wanted to close this case. And I just happened to be... um, Illiterate, black, uneducated, poor, and so I f I'm 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 the perfect guy to, to do this to, and that's what, that's what they did. That's what they did. That's what they did. That's what they did. That's
0: what they did.
2: When I first started on the Detroit crime beat in nineteen ninety eight, there were major problems throughout the Detroit police department, and my paper got a lot of story tips from honest cops who were disgusted at what they saw happening. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, Detroit police routinely violated people's civil rights in the years leading up to 2003 when the city agreed to two consent judgments, which lasted for 13 years. Here's Barb McQuaid, former head of the DOJ's Detroit office.
0: In 2003, uh, these consent decrees, two of them, were entered to resolve allegations filed by the Department of Justice. Starting in 2000, the Justice Department conducted an investigation and found a pattern and practice of unconstitutional policing in Detroit, and those unconstitutional practices largely fell into three big categories. One was use of excessive force, sometimes resulting in fatal shootings. Two was unlawful detention of witnesses who had not committed any crimes at all, just locking up people who might have information about a suspect or a crime. And three, uh, conditions of confinement that were deplorable in police holding cells.
2: James Craig became police chief in 2013, and he said he took over a department that was still troubled, even after 10 years of federal oversight.
3: When you look at Detroit's issues as it relates to unconstitutional policing, it comes down to one basic thing, and it sounds simple, uh, but what I've come to learn, failed management, no accountability. And I know many times when I make those statements, it infuriates uh, past command-level warp. Retirees that have worked in this organization but own it. This is all factual.
2: David Moran, director of the University of Michigan's Innocence Clinic, says the culture in the police department made Detroit cops the entry point to a criminal justice system that put generations of innocent people in prison.
4: There were a lot of serious problems, and to take an example, it was a routine practice in the homicide department when they go to a, ho- to a scene, they would uh, arrest witnesses and take witnesses downtown and, and put them in filthy bug infested holding cells and on, at 1300 Bobian and hold them there until somebody talked. And this is obviously an unconstitutional practice because people aren't supposed to be arrested unless there's probable cause that they did something wrong, not that they saw something wrong. And it led to innumerable uh, wrongful convictions. We will never know how many people were wrongfully convicted because uh, witnesses were arrested and coerced into falsely implicating somebody. And then when they would falsely implicate somebody, they'd be released, and then they go to court and say, no, it wasn't true, I was coerced into saying that. And then the statements would be used as proof that what they said was true. And, and so there are many cases in which people were convicted entirely on, on these statements that the witnesses would not stand by in court. So it was a culture where there were a lot of bad things going on.
2: Here's Chief Craig.
3: That's the most unconstitutional form of policing uh, that I'm aware of. And then some of the retirees or folks that have been around the organization for many years will tell you, well, when we had witnesses that wouldn't talk and we place them in custody, it had an effect on reducing homicides. And I say, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous.
2: Attorney Gabby Silver, who represents several wrongfully convicted ex-prisoners, says she was shocked when she first started practicing law in Detroit and saw the abuses that were happening at police headquarters at 1300 Bobeon.
5: Well, I mean, they didn't enter into a consent judgment by accident. I mean, I remember as a new lawyer, when I first started out, that we would get calls from families who would say that their loved one had been arrested seven, eight days ago and they had no idea where they were and you come to find out that they had been arrested by DPD, they had been taken down to 1300, and locked up as a witness, a lot of times as witnesses, because they wouldn't give the police information the police thought they should give them. Uh, People got locked up as potential suspects in cases, and they were housed in the most inhumane conditions that uh, I just can't even believe. And and for, for weeks, for months, people who were witnesses, people who weren't even witnesses, people who the police felt like just rounding up and locking up there. It was unbelievable. It really was. It was routinely done like that. It was a ends justify the means system for years and years and years. People were beaten. People were hidden from family and lawyers, and it was pretty horrific.
2: One of Gobby Silver's clients is Richard Phillips, who was arrested in 1971, just four years after the Detroit riot. And he said he's not the only innocent black man in his neighborhood to be arrested by white cops. Phillips was convicted of first-degree murder, a crime he didn't commit, based on one man's testimony, which, as has happened in so many of these cases, was later found to be faulty. Phillips was exonerated in 2018 after spending more time in prison than any other innocent person on record in United States history. 46 years.
3: The atmosphere at the time in the 70s was not good. The relationship between blacks and the police was very untrustworthy just a few years after the riots. So you got to imagine what the attitudes were among people at that time. Four, five years is not gonna make that much difference in attitudes. You know, in other words, if the police had a bad relationship with the black people and blacks always thought that they were being taken advantage of, used, uh, put into situations where they would be responsible for crimes that they didn't do, uh, taking their money, all kind of stuff was going on.
2: For many years on the crime beat, one of my competitors was Bill Proctor, a former police officer in Washington, D.C., who was a television journalist in Detroit for 33 years until he retired in 2013 to become an advocate for the wrongfully convicted. He said the abuses against Detroit's African-American citizens didn't let up after the police department became mostly black.
3: These were, in many cases, African-American investigators going out into a black community, trying to solve crimes, and in too many cases, they felt they had to abuse people who were witnesses, party to, relatives of Those things took place. There is ample evidence that it was a pattern. There is ample evidence that certain supervisors either condoned or turned their heads away from the misconduct of detectives.
2: Justly Johnson is yet another exoneree from Detroit who was released from prison recently after problems were found with the witnesses in his case. Johnson says the practice in the police department of just rounding up witnesses and leaning on them until they told detectives what they wanted to hear was responsible for putting him and another innocent man in prison for 19 years until they were exonerated in 2018. They were convicted of killing a woman in front of her three children on the day before Mother's Day in 1999. I covered that case, and it got a lot of publicity. And Johnson says that publicity was his downfall.
6: The way the Detroit police was operating at that time, I didn't know this. They didn't care whether you did it or not. Somebody was getting blamed. Somebody was going to get charged. Somebody was going to prison.
0: For more Detroit crime coverage, breaking news, features, and sports, please click on www.detroitnews.com, the Detroit News Are reporting your
6: stories.
1: One of the things that you lose when you do so much time is you lose those life experiences. You know, um, certain things like how to order off a menu. I went into a restaurant, they handed me a menu. I've been served food for 34 years, so I don't know how to really use this menu, you know. And so it's things like that, or how to drive a car, or where buildings is, or about cell phones. You know, none of this stuff was was there when I went inside. And so you lose, you lose so much. I lost so much during them 34 years.
2: What you're hearing from Daryl Siggers is the same story I've been hearing over and over recently, as a record number of innocent people are getting out of prison in Michigan. Here's Justly Johnson.
6: I could have been anything. You no, know? I could have had my own businesses, my own company, anything. They they just put my future on pause. You know, and it was sad that we had to go through that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, The bonding with my mother, the the birthing of my nephews, you know, spending time with my family.
2: Johnson's co-defendant, Kendrick Scott, says he's still trying to cope with everything he lost during those 19 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit.
6: I don't know the word you could even use. You snatched away from your life and put in a life for something you didn't do. You can't be around your family. I miss having kids, I don't got no kids. I missed growing and developing. I haven't developed with like relationships with women. I don't know how to have a relationship because I'm still having childish relationships and I'm 41 years old now, so I'm still in that mentality. I didn't have a girlfriend in there, so it wasn't like I was dating or
4: nothing. So can't do that in there. Had no real relationship, go through
6: woes, so life just real messed up right now.
2: As I interview these guys, I can see the pain in their eyes, and I can hear it in their voices, and I can see the devastating effects that a wrongful conviction can have on a family and the entire community. But how does it happen? How do people end up going to prison for crimes they didn't commit? David Moran of the Innocence Clinic says there are a number of ways that people, particularly poor people, can end up getting railroaded by the criminal justice system.
4: Bad eyewitness identification procedures, false confessions, and Um, junk science, uh, bad forensic science, uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct, which usually involves hiding evidence, hiding evidence of of innocence, Uh, bad defense lawyering, uh, which is a real problem in Michigan because Michigan has one of the nation's worst systems for providing indigent defense to poor people at trial, Uh, and the over-reliance on snitch testimony, especially jailhouse informants. So these causes lead to wrongful convictions over and over again.
2: I should point out here that there are pending lawsuits against the city and the police department from exonerees and that city attorneys declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Attorney Wolfgang Mueller, who represents many of these plaintiffs, said he's seen up close how wrongful convictions can happen.
7: There's a whole host of reasons, starting with lawyers, public defenders who are overworked, don't understand the scientific evidence that's being put in front of them. Overworked and underpaid is is a big theme, not only from the police, but to the public defenders. And then you have overzealous prosecutors, prosecutors who are truly pounding square pegs into round holes to try to fit evidence to make their theory so they start backwards with you're guilty how do we prove that instead of as you hear a lot of times you're supposed to let the evidence take you where it leads you and sometimes it leads you to the right person and sometimes it says it's not the person we're focusing on but when you start pounding square pegs into round holes because you're starting at the finish then you have a problem. And and judges have their own faults because a lot of times judges on the slimmest of evidence will say we have probable cause to proceed to trial. You don't know what a jury's going to do. There are all kinds of cases where as you look at it objectively you're blown away that anybody could ever get convicted on this evidence. But it happens. And then once a conviction happens, it is really hard to undo when that train leaves the station.
2: Aaron Salter says he still can't believe he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison based on the testimony of one man, yet another witness who was later found to be unreliable. Salter spent 15 years in prison for the 2003 murder before he was exonerated in 2018. He was a college football defensive tackle, and he looked nothing at all like the description the witness gave police. They arrested him anyway
6: one of the guys that got shot he actually gave a description of two guys that was supposed to be doing the shooting at the time all right he gave a 57 150 to 170 uh, description and then he got a six foot thin description and neither one of those fit me man I, at the time of prison i was like six three 250 just coming out of college man there's no way anybody would mistake me for six foot thin Nor would they mistake me for 5'7 and 150 pounds, man. That's just not not reasonable, man. You know, I don't know if it's really because they wanted to close the case. I don't know. I can't. For the life of me, I can't understand how you would put a guy in in prison for the rest of his life with no evidence other than a shaky witness. I don't understand how that can happen, man. That's just being real. Like that description should not be enough to take a guy whole life, man. Take a guy whole life, man. Take a guy whole life, man. Take a guy whole life, man.
0: In our next episode, we'll take a look at the strange case of Devante Sanford who was arrested at age 14 for a quadruple homicide he insists he didn't commit. Please join us again, and thank you for listening to Sins of Detroit.